Good morning, and I appreciate this opportunity to speak. As Matt mentioned, my name's Nick. I'm, uh, I'm a member here, along with my wife, and um, we have three girls. And so if you're visiting with us, uh, thank you so much for being here, and uh, we do hope the uh, services will be a blessing to you. And I always want to encourage the visitors, uh, come back when the, the elders, or the, uh, our elders preach, and uh, don't base... Don't base this on me, so come back again, come back again, all right? But uh, we've been going through a series entitled Gospel and Kingdom, and so they have given me the task to walk us through the prophesied kingdom, the prophesied kingdom. And so uh, if you see, if you have your bulletin, it's blank. Um, there's a lot of material that we are going to cover and uh, go read a lot of verses, and so I will do my best to give you uh, the reference, and uh, maybe you can jot that down, and I'll try to place emphasis on uh, particular ones that you really should jot down, and I'm going to move pretty quick, so just bear with me and be patient uh, with me, and I would appreciate, uh, appreciate that. We'll begin with a little bit of Christmas in July, all right? Isaiah chapter 7, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. For, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All like we sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that... Before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your love and for your mercy and for your grace. Lord, we thank you for these prophets that we will look at, who at times had a very daunting task. And so, Lord, we ask that we, you would minister to our hearts, and, Lord, that you would teach us from your word. Father, I declare, declare to you now that my confidence is in only you. So, Lord, help me by your spirit to teach your word in a way that will be a, in a way that honors you and honors the text and encourages your people. Uh, Lord, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. In Christ's name, amen. So we're continuing the series on the kingdom of God, God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. 
And as I mentioned, I'm going to do my best to walk us through the prophesied kingdom. Uh, a couple sources that uh, helped me and, and I'm, that I'll be largely be pulling from is uh, Von Roberts' book, God's Big Picture. And I also uh, listened to John Pope, uh, one of our pastor's good friends. He spoke here several times for us. He preached this message back in 2012, I believe. And so I uh, listened to that, and that was a blessing and a help uh, to, to me. All right? So let's begin. After the death of King Solomon. So what we're going to try to do this morning is paint the big picture, all right? And of how God is working and how God is doing uh, through all of the prophets. After the death of King Solomon, civil war broke out, and the kingdom of Israel split into two parts, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Neither was very strong. After 200 years of separate existence, the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom struggled for, uh, on for another century, but then it too was conquered, and its inhabitants were taken into exile in Babylon. During this depressing period in their history, God spoke to the people of Israel and Judah through some prophets. He explained that they were being punished for their sin, but still offered hope for the future. The prophets point forward to a time when God would act decisively through his king, the Messiah, to fulfill all his promises. The people of Judah must have thought that the time had come when they were allowed to return from exile under King uh, Cyrus of Persia, but God made it clear that that great time of salvation was still in the future. And that is where the Old Testament will end. And this is just kind of a summary of where we're going, waiting for God's king to appear to his people. Concerning the prophetic portions of our Bible, one writer says, while they contain some of the loftiest and most beautiful descriptions of God and his redemptive plan to be found anywhere in the scriptures, are yet among the most difficult portions to understand and interpret. They are gold mines that require a great deal of labor to extract and possess the vast riches hidden deep beneath the services. Without a, a little guidance and reflection, one might wander, wander aimlessly here and there without making heads or tails of the bulk of what has been written. came across a quote by Martin Luther. I'll, I'll change a word he uses because... In our culture, we no longer use that word that way. Uh, but he's, Martin Luther writes concerning the prophets, they have a peculiar way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off one thing to the next so that they cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. That should encourage you. So if you've ever read the prophetical books and you're like, what is happening? Martin Luther struggled too, all right? So I just want to give you a little encouragement this morning. Um, and I've been praying all week myself, God, give me a mind, at, you know, like Pastor Matt or Rusty's, all right? And uh, help me out with this. He hasn't answered that prayer, so <laughs> we'll keep going though, all right? We'll just keep going. I even brought smart water to like help, but smart water doesn't really help with that. It just hydrates. Nevertheless, here's the main thought for us, because as, as, we're going to give you a lot of information, I'm going to, but here's, here's what we want you to think about. In this crazy world full of chaos, God's people, they can rest assured that God has a plan, and there is hope for now and the future. We can rest there. And so as we look back of thousands of years of how God 
had worked uh, through his, his nation and through the prophets and the promises that he has fulfilled, we, it screams to us, you know, God has a plan. God is in control, and we can trust in him as his people. We can trust in him. Our hope rests in our triune God who has provided us with the Messiah who has bled and died for the sins of his people. And he has providentially provided us with thousands of thousands of copies of his word. We need to be thankful for that. His special revelation to us is the, the book that you hold in your hands or the app that you have on your phone. Genesis to Revelation, that's his revela- special revelation to us that we have, that we can read and that we can uh, be encouraged by, and that helps uh, uh, teach us of this hope we have in Christ. 1 Peter chapter number 1, verse 10, 1 Peter 1, 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. It was revealed to them, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that they have now announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which heaven angels long to look. The Old Testament prophets did not see as clearly when the prophecies would be realized, but they predicted that Christ would suffer and then be glorified. Children of God today, we should be very grateful for these prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but us New Testament believers, because we enjoy so much more progressive revelation from the scriptures than they did. We're looking back when they were looking forward uh, to the cross of Christ, and we should be thankful that they didn't serve themselves and they wrote these things down. So, let's get going. What is a prophet then? Well, what is a prophet? Some teaching moments here. A prophet, plainly, is one who speaks on behalf of another. Now, in our context, that would be who's the another? God. All right, God. So, a biblical prophet is one who speaks for God. That's his job. That's his position. And in one sense, though, if you are a child of God, all believers are God's prophets. Not that we are receiving the revelation as they did, but the revelation that God has provided us in his word. It's all of our jobs to teach his word. It's all of our jobs to proclaim it, to teach what he has said, what he has given us in his word. So in one sense, Now, all of us, the church, is God's mouthpiece in this day and age to proclaim the goodness of God, to proclaim the gospel of Christ, the death, the burial, the resurrection of him. Sometimes we only think of John the Baptist doing crazy stuff out in the wilderness, right? Or you read Ezekiel. Ezekiel had some interesting things going on. You know, he had a lie on on his side for like hundreds of days and shave his head and he wasn't allowed to mourn his wife. And we read these things, you're like, sometimes we think, oh, they are just the prophets, right? They're just those crazy people we hear about every now and then. But no, in a sense, we all are. Not only does God want to speak through them, but us too. In the New Testament, Paul calls that, uh, calls Christians, Christ followers, what? ambassadors. He calls us ambassadors. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, you want to write that uh, reference down. All, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconcil- reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. God making his appeal through us. God using us to share his word, to preach his truth. And so as prophets, as the biblical prophets, and same today as ambassadors, when we live and go through our daily lives, and especially when we're teaching God's word or ministering to someone, we need to remember we must never operate on our own agenda. Matter of fact, we, ne- we, don't have, we shouldn't have an agenda. Or God gives us no right to push our agenda. We must be concerned with what does God say. I know several conversations I've had with, with Matt in terms of planting the church, planting churches and so forth. That's, I think, the number one question. What does God say? That should be in our minds daily, shouldn't it? In terms of our, what we do, how we uh, usher, uh, spend our time, the money that we, we spend. What does God say about this? What's his agenda? Um, how can I speak the gospel into his or her life? As a, an ambassador or as a prophet, they did not have agenda. They had to push God's agenda. They were God's mouthpiece, and they must speak what they were giving. And especially for us today, we should, as ambassadors of Christ, we should speak words that generate fellowship, change, restoration, and renewal towards Christ. I was thinking about that, and want you maybe just to pause for a moment and think about that. Out of all of the words that come out of your mouth every day, and that's all, it can be a lot, how many of those speak to those things? Encouraging change, restoration, or the gospel, or God's word. Think about the words you, you use. So the point here is prophets are indeed God's mouth pieces. Uh, Justin Taylor wrote a helpful article, and I'm going to go through this and kind of give you the points of some unifying themes of the prophets. And so as you think of them, and we'll get into more, the, the major and the minor, when you think of them, usually as you're studying or reading those, these several things that it's going to fall inside this framework, all right? So number one, a theme of the prophets. First, the prophets assert, as I already said, that God has spoken through them. They clearly considered themselves God's messengers and heralds. Uh, For repeated preface to their messages, how many times do we read, uh, Thus saith Yahweh, or thus saith the Lord, or the word of the Lord came unto me, saying. And so they are, they assert that God has spoken through them. Secondly, the prophets affirm that God chose Israel for covenant relationship. The prophets affirm that God chose Israel for covenant relationship. The Pentateuch teaches that God chose Abraham and his family to bless all nations, that he revealed salvation by grace to Abraham, and that he assigned Moses to write the record of this revelation. 
Furthermore, though, Moses in Exodus through Deuteronomy, he revealed the lifestyle that reflect, reflects that relationship. Thirdly, another theme could be, prophets most often report that the majority of Israel has sinned against their God and his standards for their relationship. They had a tough job. We'll see that. They had a tough job. They were continually confronting sin, calling out sin, calling uh, God's people back to the covenant, reminding them that you are in a covenant, that you are breaking that covenant. What is a covenant? It's just an agreement between two parties. And uh, so the prophets were calling them back to the, to the uh, covenant Sinai, the Mosaic covenant. And so the majority of Israel had sinned against their God in this standards. Fourthly, the prophets warned that judgment will eradicate sin. That judgment will eradicate sin. And fifth, the prophets promised promise that renewal lies beyond the day of punishment that has occurred already in history and beyond the coming day that will bring history as we know it to uh, close. And so they not only called out what was going on in front of them, but they also pointed to the future and that God will one day judge all and the Messiah will come and so forth. So the first one who really gets assigned to speak for God is Moses. Sometimes when we think of prophets, we don't think of Moses as a prophet, right? Well, he's like one of the clearest uh, prophets that we have. But he wasn't excited to speak for God. What did Moses do? Right? Send someone else. And uh, as, you, as I looked at some of the prophets, a lot of them were, were frightened to speak for God. Think about that. That's a pretty weighty task. Uh, pretty weighty task. And a lot of them were, they were indeed fearful. And think of how many times God has to come to them, fear not, I am with you, don't be afraid, I will help you. But they were typically scared for, uh, and fearful. And think, think contextually back then, why would that be? Really? That's what God told you? Come on. God's speaking to you now? I don't know if I believe that. And then you got to consider there was a lot of false prophets in the day. Oh, God's not going to judge us. We're good. Calm down. Don't believe this guy. Don't believe that guy. So they had a lot to contend with, and often they were scared. But time and time again, God tells them, do not fear. So they were frightened. But you also notice if you were to study them, they were also humble as they spoke for God. Numbers 12 talks about how Moses was the most humble man on earth. He desired humility. He desired humility. But the prophets were also passionate about the word. In Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 8, you can mark that down. Jeremiah Jeremiah 28, for whenever I speak, I cry out, I shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. For if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary with reholding it in, and I cannot. Jeremiah says, God's word is, is, is it's, in, it's in me. When I speak it, it's hard. And people don't respond, and people don't listen, but I can't stop. I must 
speak. It's shut up in my bones as a burning fire. And so the prophets, they feared and they revered God. And there's a trace of humility in them. Question for application, do we have a healthy fear of God as one who is called to speak on his behalf at times? Do we have that healthy fear, that reverence of God? And then in our evangelism, in terms of that, John Pope uh, pointed this out in, in his sermon about humility. Humility. When you are talking to the people, uh, may, may, it can be another Christian or someone who is not a Christian. Do you come off prideful? Do you come off arrogant? Um, do you come off in a way that would be more associated with how the world would do things? But we see in Moses' life and a lot of the prophets' life how there was humility. A couple misconceptions about prophets. Number one, only those in the Old Testament. Kind of already mentioned that. All followers, in a sense, have a responsibility to speak for God's truth. Um, why is that? Because we, ha- we now have the completed canon. We have the completed scriptures. And so we must teach it. We must speak it. Uh, secondly, they only speak about something coming in the future. Again, most of the time they're dealing with present circumstances. They are warning uh, the people now. And then to understand, true prophecies come from God. Their origin is God. If you have your Bibles, go to Second Peter. 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1, verse 20. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, this is what we call in theology special revelation god has spoken through someone someone a word to us we now have to have the completed scriptures so we speak his word to others back to moses for for a moment again one of the clearest biblical prophets moses he was the receiver of the sinai covenant or the mosaic covenant right the agreement between Uh, God and the nation of Israel, that you are my people, that you are going to live as I uh, have commanded you, that you are going to follow all of my ways and my commandments, and they agreed to that. This covenant, this agreement would tie um, the nation of Israel for thousands of years. Exodus chapter 7 says, And the Lord said to Moses, See, I made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. And so, again, prophets, God's mouthpieces. Not only did the prophets speak for God, uh, but especially the ones who came after Moses, they, uh, they guarded the covenant. They guarded the things of God. Von Roberts in his book calls them covenant enforcers, right? Covenant enforcers. If they wished, God's people wished to remain in the land and enjoy God's blessing there, they had to obey his law. If they did not, they would face judgment and the world ultimately, and they would ultimately be exiled from the land. 
The role of the prophets who succeeded Moses uh, was to enforce the covenant, urging the people to obey it and reminding them and reminding them and reminding them uh, to obey, to uh, follow the Lord and to obey his command. And that the blessings would follow obedience and the curses would follow disobedience. So they were covenant enforcers, these prophets in scriptures. They're the ones God called and had, hey, you need to come back to obedience. You need to come back to doing what's right. You need to come back to what God uh, desires for you. For some reason, I, I, I thought of like the safety coordinator. <laughs> so at work, and you guys work in like a plant or manufacturing facility. You guys are all smart, smart out here. You don't. But uh, a couple weeks, uh, not a couple weeks ago, but sometime this past year, uh, with my job, we we did some work in the Gatorade plant, PepsiCo plant in Atlanta, Georgia. And so, of course, you know you got to go in there, and you're supposed to have glasses and beard bands and headbands and earplugs because the the machine and the the lines that they're running. And so we're working on a heat exchanger there, and. Uh, doing something, and I took my earplugs out and just had them, you know, I forgot to put them back in, and so go back to work, and then this guy, guy in a shirt and tie, comes up to me and gets, gets like, right up in my ear. He's like, hey, you want to be deaf? I'm like, no. He's like, put your earplugs in, and it just walks off. <laughs> but uh, what was he doing? He was enforcing the rules. He was enforcing uh, the regulations, that was his job. And in, in some sense, same with the prophets. Hey, guys, you're sinning. You're living in disobedience. You're not honoring God. Stop it. Change. Judgment is coming. He's going to judge that. God isn't going to sweep it under the rug. Get back. Uh, screams. Those thoughts scream through, uh, through uh, the, the writings of the prophets. Um, and you know what? We can look at it and think, man, they, they had a hard job. or they, uh, That was a grace of God that God would send those prophets to his people. Right? Hey, God has even done all these miraculous things for you. And you're still wandering. You're still going back to idolatry. You're still breaking my law. And God, in his grace, is like, okay, I want to raise some guys up to remind you, to pull you back. Um, we need that, don't we? We need that. I think we can associate it, and we should be thankful for our elders here. Thankful for the DNA leaders here. I know in my own life, um, it's easy to lose focus. It's easy to let the cares of the world just choke, choke the, the things of God out and your priorities to get changed. And many times I've noticed, left to myself, sometimes they won't get reprioritized. And it takes God's people, the body, or uh, our pastors, hey, come back, come back. So we need to view that. That's a grace. That's God saying, giving us reminders. Hey, I'm still in charge. I still love you. This is what I want for your life. This is what is good for your life. Live and yield yourself to me. 
So the prophets, not only did they proclaim God's word, they also enforced God's word, and they also confronted sin. They confronted sin. The first major prophets after uh, Moses, Elijah and Elisha, much of their ministry involves public confrontations with the kings of Israel. They call the kings to live according to God's law and to repent of their idolatry and lack of trust in him. Um, They had to confront Ahab. Now, Ahab, widespread apostasy under King Ahab. He was a pretty wicked guy, a very evil king uh, who married a more eviler woman. (laughs) Um, That's not a word, but uh, women, man. Women in the Bible, I tell you. No, I'm just kidding, just kidding. Joking, joking. Don't throw anything at me. But he was evil. He married an evil woman. Uh, 1 Kings 16.30, it says, And Ahab uh, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. Under Ahab, many of God's prophets uh, were killed. Baal was worshipped throughout the land. 1 Kings 19, write that down. 1 Kings 19, verse 10. 1 Kings 19, 10. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Not an easy job. But it was their job to go and to confront sin and to proclaim God's law. Uh, God reassures those prophets in chapter 19, but later on, judgment is uh, coming. It will not be avoided. And so they had to confront sin. From about the 8th century onward, the prophets begin to write down their oracles, right? Sometimes when you read, you come across an oracles. Essentially, what God had told them. What God had told them. Uh, Vaughn takes a position, there are 17 prophetical books in the Bible, often referred to the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then you have the minor prophets, essentially the rest of the New Testament, uh, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, all of those up to Malachi. They're called considered minor just because they are shorter in length. And each group, another theme here, I gave you kind of five unifying themes, but as we're moving forward, each group, the prophets, uh, there is two dominant themes, essentially. One of judgment, and then secondly, of hope. Judgment and hope, both of which are based on God's covenant promise, that you are my chosen people, and you need to do as I have told you to do. Uh, Judgment. Uh, Roberts points out that Judgment is often rarely mentioned in churches, but we see it all through uh, Scripture, that God is continually judging or disciplining his children. Um, interesting quote I, I, I found concerning just judgment. Every instance of wrath of God against sin and his punishment of sin looks forward to the wrath that was poured out on Christ on the cross. Every instance of wrath of God against sin and his punishment of sin looks forward to the wrath that was poured out on Christ on the cross. There are even long sections considering judgment. Long sections of books are devoted to exposing people's sin and announcing God's judgment against it. The people 
uh, both Israel and Judah were complacent and did not take the warning seriously, but their complacency was shattered when the Assyrians defeated Israel. And Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, and they took the people of, of Judah into exile. God's people of Judah into exile. The prophets stressed that these acts of God's judgment in fulfillment of his word to them uh, when he inaugurated the covenant at the time of Moses. And so as the, the nations, these wicked nations, were, were defeating them and took them into captivity, the prophets are saying, guys, we made a covenant. This is God's judgment. This is God's judgment. This is what he's doing. But they struggled with that. But they stress that these acts of God's judgment are in fulfillment of his word. Uh, again, but God is gracious and continually warning his people. Continually warning his people. Don't do that. Don't worship other gods. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Love the Lord thy God and warning them and warning them and warning them. Similar as how parents would warn their children. And if their children do not heed to that warning, what happens? There's typically there should be a consequence. There should be a consequence. And so God, through his prophets, is stressing and warning and calling his people back to himself. The Israelites were given a very clear warning through Moses and Joshua. Even before they entered the land, if you turn away from God, you will be judged and sent into exile. They disobey, and so God, through the prophets, reminds them, if you continue to live like this, God will judge you. But you need to remember, too, like God is extremely patient through all of this. It's not like just one time, okay, you're done. God, there's years of God sending his prophets and being patient with his people. And we know that God is patient. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before them and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Joel 2, 13, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relents over disaster. But in his patience, judgment comes. God speaks again through the prophets like Ezekiel at the time of the exile, explaining what is going on. God is judging you like he said. They are not to think that Jerusalem has been defeated because God is less powerful than the Babylonians. He is still in control. He has been at work in the, through the Babylonians, carrying out the judgment he has promised. That's what he's speaking. And they would say, well, how in the world can these wicked nations uh, defeat us? And, and where is God? Why isn't God judging that? And it's not that God doesn't judge it, but he judges it in his own timing. Uh, if you would, go to Habakkuk. Go to Habakkuk. I just want to illustrate that God has a plan, and I hope you do find some encouragement from this. God has a plan, and he always had a plan, and he is always active in our life. He is always active in our life. And so Habakkuk, a minor prophet, um, he ministered probably from 612 B.C. to 589 B.C. Uh, in it, he predicts the Babylonian invasion of the southern kingdom of Judah in verses 1 through 6. 
Uh, it references the Chaldeans, but that's just another name of the Babylonians or the Neo-Babylonians. Um, and Habakkuk is interesting. Instead of addressing the people directly in this, this letter, in this book, it's rather a dialogue between Habakkuk and God. And so when you read Habakkuk, think kind of, it's almost like a, a personal journal. It's a dialogue that he is having with, uh, with God. And essentially in chapters 1 and 2, he uh, speak of Habakkuk's complaints, and the Lord replies. Habakkuk was deeply troubled about Judah's moral and spiritual deterioration, and a lot of the false prophets were saying God was not going to judge his people. And so Habakkuk uh, laments, the Lord responds, Habakkuk laments in the Lord's response, and then we get to chapter 3, and we see how God's word has changed the heart of Habakkuk, and he, and he, and he uh, ends the, this book in prayer, and almost in a worshipful heart, his faith has been removed, and uh, just wanted to point a couple of things out. Here's one of the questions he asked the Lord. Habakkuk verse 1, 2. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Essentially saying, why are you letting sin go unpunished? Verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention rise. He believes God is letting sin go unpunished, and therefore there's no justice. I can hardly believe that you appear to tolerate sin instead of punishing it. Verse 4, Habakkuk 1, verse 4. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And then look at the Lord's answer to his prophet. And think about it, this is his prophet. This encourages me, you know, he was... Habakkuk was ev- evidently struggling and, and, and was questioning and, and was trying to figure some things out. And look at verse 4, or verse 5. He says, Look among the nations and see, and wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Like, mic drop, <laughs> Right? What is, what is, what's the implication of that? God's not letting sin go unpunished. God's not like, I have no idea what's going on with my people. God is ever actively working. And, and, and God tells his prophet, like, I am doing stuff even if I let you in to see that picture or that plan. You wouldn't believe me. You wouldn't believe me. But this is what you should be doing. I've already given you the law. We have, I've spoken to you. We're in a covenant. This is what you should be doing. Don't worry about the rest of that stuff. I've got that in control. And if I let you into that, you wouldn't even believe if I told you. God says to his prophet that I am doing a work and have already been doing a work here. I'm completely in control of everything. What would really, again, Egypt eventually would be crushed. Assyrian Empire would be defeated by the Babylonians. But how many times we, as God's children as God's as believers have we thought or asked the same thing is God really working in my life or what is God doing in my life Paul Tripp has let me read you what Paul Tripp says God is ever active in my life we can look at Psalms 46 Romans chapter 8 we can look at this book 
But to ask why he isn't working is to assume something that is not true. True conclusions cannot come from false assumptions. A better way of asking is to say, God is redemptively active in my life, so what is he doing and why don't I recognize it? This question can lead to greater insight, biblical change, and a harvest of good fruit. Let's move on. So Habakkuk comes back with another question in chapter 1, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? What shall, uh, we shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked watch swallows up the, the man more righteous than he? Uh, in chapters 2, verse 20, we don't have time to hit all that, but essentially he's saying evil will not triumph forever. God teaches them that I'm going to use the Babylonians to correct and drive Judah back to me. You don't worry, I will punish and judge the wicked at the right time. And he pronounces woe to the Babylonians. Uh, verse chap- chapter 2 and verse 2, he writes an open message and plainly, uh, and plainly so ever one can see it, that God is in control and he will judge the wicked righteously. Judgment eventually did come, the Babylonian empire did fall, and so forth. And then let's go to chapter 3. This is where we see Habakkuk's heart change as he approached God and as he sought questions and asked God. He says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk knew God was going to judge and correct his people. And it wasn't going to be a pleasant experience. But he accepted. You see the heart change that that God produced in him, that he accepted God's will, and he asked for help and mercy to revive his work. What a wonderful prayer and attitude. Help me, Lord, to accept your will for my life and revive my faith and do a work in my life and others. In verses 3 through 16, he paints a picture of God delivering his people out of Egypt. And again, God is all, we must not forget the power and the ability of God. Not only is God in control of his nation, but as we see, especially through the prophets, like he's controlling the, the other nations. He's controlling the wicked nations. He has control over all of it. Not just, not, he has the power and the ability um, to be in control and to sovereignly rule the entire earth and to rule all nations. Anticipating the coming destruction to his people and his enemies, Habakkuk's heart has been radically changed by God's word. He began by informing God how to run his world. How many times do we do that? In our prayers, the desires that rise up out of our hearts, the things that we say, the complaining, the grumbling. What are we saying? I don't like how God's ruling the world today. I don't like how he's doing that. I'm just going to complain, going to bicker. It's so, it's so convicting. He began in, by informing God how to run his world, and he ended by trusting that God knows best and will bring about justice. Look at verse 
uh, 17. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the field yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. He says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So where is, where is the source of his joy here? It's in a being. It's in God, not the circumstance that he's about, that he just described. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Don't let, listen to what he just said and described. He says, if the fig trees don't bud, if there's no grapes on the vine, if the fields produce no food, if there's no sheep, if there's no cattle, he's talking about suffering, he's talking about starvation, he's talking about things we would associate in third world countries. He says, if all of that happens, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He is my strength. He is my joy. He is the God of my salvation. I know in my own life, as soon as something doesn't go my way, you know, we can get extremely frustrated at the circumstance. And a lot of times we allow the circumstance to dictate the joy in our life. Um, and we were talking in our DNA this past Wednesday. If that's the case, there's probably, there's probably sin there. There's idolatry there. We're worshiping something other than God. Because our joy is, should be the source of it connected in God and who he is. And what he has done for his children. Habakkuk was a changed person. He learned to wait and to trust in God, who works all things out for his glory. What can we learn? God is in control, and we can trust him in spite of anything that you go through. So what is God working on in your life? How is God working in your life? Think about that question. What is God doing? If God is everly and at all times active, what's he doing in my life? What's he teaching me through his word? What's he teach me through the people that he has placed around me? There's also another implication of this. What do, when, when we come in contact with people who are suffering, like we have, what are we offering them? Is it self-help? Is it is some practical thing? No. As, as God's prophets, as God's ambassadors, like we, we offer God. Like I don't know what you're going through. But God can help you. Jesus has died for you. This is what we have to offer. Offer them hope. Offer them something that can truly change their heart. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what we have to offer people who are discouraged or embittered. He can be their identity. He can be their riches. He can be their strength. He can be their future. He is their hope. Moving on, 
So his judgment on his people in the Old Testament warns us of our complacency. That's what we can learn when we think of the judgment. It warns us of our complacency. The New Testament warns us as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We'll read that uh, a little bit later. So then coming to the second theme, so we talked about judgment. The second dominating theme is hope. To be faithful to his word, God has to judge people. But that same word demands that the judgment will not end, uh, will not be the end of his dealings with them. There is a conditional element that God promises. He made it clear through Moses. But there's also an unconditional element. His promise to Abraham is a guaranteed commitment we see in Genesis chapter 12. God's covenant, which is the basis of the prophet's message of judgment, is also the basis of other major themes in their book. In their book, hope. While their history proclaimed the failure of Israel, the prophets proclaimed the future of Israel. They do speak of good times ahead. Do you remember what it was like in the good old days of Moses and David and Solomon, they would ask? Well, it will be like that again in the future, only much better. There will be a new exodus, a new covenant, a new nation, a new temple, a new creation. God will not rebuild the model, the partial kingdom, but he will establish that which he pointed, the real thing, the perfect kingdom. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying his blessing. So I want to bring out uh, from the book, God's people, we'll bring this to a close, uh, the remnant, the remnant. Though God will bring terrible judgment of his people, he will not destroy them completely. Thank God. Thank God. A remnant will be preserved, out of whom God will create a new nation. It will be a new exodus. The plight of the people of Judah in exile in Babylon is similar to that of the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt. As God rescued them, so he will rescue them again. There will be a new exodus. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 16. Jeremiah 16. Jeremiah 16 verse 14. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, for I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. The prophets also spoke of the servant. Isaiah stresses that the new exodus will be achieved by this one he calls the servant. Sometimes the servant is identified as the nation of Israel, but the other passages in Isaiah uh, make it clear that this individual um, who will be used by God to rescue the remnant, he is the Messiah. He is the snake crusher from Genesis. Go to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49, verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to rise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach 
to the end of the earth. He will achieve this rescue by his death. We read that in Isaiah chapter 53. We already read it, but again, this portion of of prophetic scripture is written in perfect tense. In other words, it's speaking of a future event as if it already happened. It's already taken place because it is so certain. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This individual is both the true Israel and the one who dies for the remnant of Israel, so that God's people can be rescued from their sin. We also see the inclusions of the nations the prophets speak about. The servant's role extends beyond Israel. The promise of Abraham blessing to the nations will be fulfilled. Men and women from all peoples will benefit when God acts to save Israel. It's Isaiah chapter 60 verses 1 through 3. And then we'll see the prophets speak of God ushering in his place, a new temple. The book of Ezekiel begins with a vision of the glory of God leaving the temple in Jerusalem. He's acting in judgment. He's withdrawing his people. The building is, not, is now nothing but an empty shell, and it's been destroyed by the Babylonians. But the book ends with great hope. Uh, Ezekiel has another vision of another temple coming in a day, chapters 40 through 48. And it's an ex- exhaustive detail. And it describes a temple, it describes a place that, that we have never seen. That was much bigger than the temple in Jesus' day. A river flows out of it. Ezekiel's vision of a new temple is so magnificent that it cannot refer simply to one building on earth. It's a symbol of a new creation. God's plan of salvation is not limited to the Israelites and even to all human beings of all nations. The creator of everything is determined to undo completely the effects of the fall and renew the whole world. It's the hope he's offering that his people in exile, his people in captivity, his people just wondering, what is God doing? He rises up the prophets and he says, look, there is hope. There is hope. God has given us a word. There is one day there's going to be a new temple. There's going to be a new creation. There is hope. Isaiah 65, if you want to write that down, Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And he says, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness, to be a gladness. And then we see God's rule and blessing under the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when I took them by their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husbands, declares the Lord. 
This covenant will not be a completely new start. God's not abandoning the promises made in the past. But how can he fulfill those promises to bless his people? God must remain faithful to his word. He must judge and punish the Israelites if they disobey him. So how can he bless them and punish them given their continued sinfulness? Under the new covenant, it makes it clear. The new covenant will make it possible. God will find a way of dealing with sin that is, uh, so that all his people will be forgiven and know God. How will he do that? He will change them from within. He will change them from within. He will, as Jeremiah says, he will write it on their hearts. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Ezekiel and Joel make it clear that this promise of the presence of God's Holy Spirit in the lives of God, all of God's people. And this new covenant is brought in by Jesus' death when he took the cup at the Last Supper. This is the cup I poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. There's also hope with the new king. As God had ruled through a king in the days of the old covenant and the monarch, so he would do again in the new covenant. The prophets built on a promise God had made to David that an eternal universal king would come from his line. The salvation of God's people and the fulfillment of God's promises depend on the coming of this anointed one, Jesus Christ, the son of David. Daniel says he's the son of man. He describes him, this man as one having authority and glory and sovereign power uh, of all the peoples and the nations of, of, of men. Such passages like this, Daniel chapter 7, make it clear. This, this king that's coming in the that we're looking forward to, that I'm telling you to place your hope in, this king is no ordinary man. This, this, is, the, this is the Messiah. This is the one, uh, the son of David. He is God. It's, he will reign because he is God. Then we see the return from the exile. In the Hebrew arrangement of the Old Testament, it closes with Second Chronicles, with which ends with the promise that the exile of God's people will soon be over. In one sense, that happens after 538, but that is not the new exodus the prophets uh, spoke of. And so as the nation of Israel, as they were leaving from exile, many of the younger ones said, oh, this is it. God's ushering this in. And a lot of them said, no, 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 this isn't it. It's what's, what's coming is much bigger, is much better. The time has not uh, yet come. Spiritually speaking, God's people are still in exile waiting for the Lord to return to them and fulfill all his promises of salvation. God's kingdom still has not come because God's king has not come. But the last of the prophets insists, go to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. He says, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then 
the Old Testament concludes. And uh, they are awaiting the Messiah. They're awaiting their king. They're awaiting the new temple. They're still waiting, but the prophets leave them with hope. You keep trusting in God. He has a plan. He has a plan. He's going to send us a new king out of the line of David who will reign. One day Christ will return for us all and take us on a final exodus. Through us the kingdom was lost, but through Christ it is regained. Christ is our new temple, and he's bringing about a new creation. The prophet's messages were hard, but they were from God. And it screams to us again, here's some application, it screams to us again of God's character through his judgment that he displayed in the destruction of sin. And that still rings true for us today. If you would, last, last text. Thank you for your um, attention. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Not typically a comforting passage to leave you, but this, this message was on the prophets. So um, we will leave you with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, Verse 5, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. May we confront the sin in our own lives and hearts through the working of the Holy Spirit. At the same time, may we have a heart of humility when it gets pointed out to us through our prophets and through the church body. And the encouraging thought, again, God has a plan. He always keeps his promises and we can trust him. We have the, we are in the, have the privilege of looking back of thousands of years through the scripture and seeing God miraculously work and God miraculously do exactly what he said he's going to do. What a wonderful blessing that is. And that should give us a surety of the promises that are still yet fulfilled when Christ comes back again and ushers in 
all of the new creation and reigns, we can trust in that. We can have hope in that. That's what he said he would do. And so may we ask God to help us to trust and to rest in those promises. And may we be thankful for the reminders that God places in our lives because there's no doubt, as 1 Corinthians teaches us, we need them. We need to be continually uh, warned. May God help us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I thank you so much for your love. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the theme of the prophets that they need to turn from their sin and turn to God and have hope and rest and peace because God is going to do exactly what God has said he would and that he has a plan and that one day he's going to set everything back in its right place with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit ruling supremely. We thank you for that hope. We thank you for the lessons and the examples that you have given us with your people of old that we can look back and we can be warned and we can learn from. God, you are gracious in giving us those things. You don't have to. We don't deserve them. But you are so patient towards us. And we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and his payment for our sin. May we trust in him.